Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking energy, energy transition, and geopolitics. And our guest is Daniel Jurgen. Daniel is a Pulitzer Prize winning author of the book, The Prize. He's vice chairman of IHS Market, has been a member of the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board here in the United States under four presidents. Daniel's latest book is called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Dan, thanks for joining. I'm very glad to be here with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes, very excited to have you on. So I guess we're focusing on your new book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, and taking that a little bit beyond as well and, and really focusing on how energy transition will itself impact geopolitics. The book starts off focusing on really, I guess, the last 20 years and zooming in on four countries in particular, um, the US, China, Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Russia, and how I guess you use this metaphor of a map and how their maps have changed over the last 20 years as a result of energy. Can you just, before we dig into each of those countries, can you just give us a, an overview of how you came up with that concept of a map and, and how you found that a useful tool? I think it started, Paul, when I was simply looking at how the change in the flow of energy in the United States, where, whereas it used to go from the Gulf Coast crude oil up to the Midwest, and, and it all changed, how shale changed the whole flow of natural gas and oil, and looking at it in terms of pipelines. And then as I thought about it, it really struck me that, you know, I've been doing, my work is really focused on the intersection of energy and geopolitics. And how the kind of map, that global map, metaphorically speaking, to use your term, had changed. Uh, and it changed not just in the last 20 years, but really had changed in the last half decade in so many different ways. And so that's how I came to think about the new map exploring this new world, these new configurations of, uh, of energy on one side, geopolitics on the other, and where they come together. Yeah, the the fascinating thing I think that comes out of that this part of the book is how crucial energy is in driving geopolitics, and how energy has ultimately been a key driver. You, I think, you even say in the in some of your conclusions, a key driver of of the globalization that we saw right up until really the last four years or so, or three years. Can we? I guess so. Let's talk about that. So the U.S. shale is. It's incredible having been in the U.S. when when all of that took off and not really recognizing it for what it was at the time. That really was just transformative. Can you just give us a sense of how how U.S. shale really changed the maps? If we rewind the tape back to sort of 2003, the U.S. was going to become the largest importer of LNG in the world. It was going to be importing more and more oil. Presidents may have talked about energy independence. The only question is, would our imports go up to 60, 70, 80 percent? But so interesting to me, sometimes great forces, great changes come out of really single people's willful determination. And this guy, George P. Mitchell, gas man in Houston, was convinced you could get gas out of shale rock. He had a commercial reason for doing it. He had contracts to supply a substantial part of Chicago's natural gas, and his fields were, were running down. And it took 16 years to get halfway there in a breakthrough. 
And it took about another five years to have the complete breakthrough in 2003. And people just didn't really see it coming. You know, almost, I don't think anybody, even those who were, became advocates, saw the scale of it, that the U, how fast the U.S. natural gas position would change and how the U.S. would go in just a matter of a few years from being the biggest importer of, world, of oil in the world to the biggest producer of oil in the world, but an exporter, which had been, you know, inconceivable. And all the changes that came from it, which are now sort of almost taken for granted or even glossed over, but this has been a major energy change, uh, economic change, and geopolitical change. Yeah, there's that quite a resting moment in the book where you describe Sharif Suki, the, the CEO of Chenier, getting a call from Shell and from Aubrey McClendon and effectively t- deciding to turn his liquefaction plant around and uh, start exporting. Yeah, I mean, the book is filled with these characters who are really of decisive importance and so often people with tremendous willpower. And Sharif was going to go into the business of importing LNG, although he had no experience in the business. He'd been a banker, a restauranteur, and now he was going to be a uh, LNG importer. And suddenly he gets these calls saying, can you export some of this stuff? We have too much of it. And to turn around on a dime and have some probably near-death experiences in terms of uh, changing this business and now making Shamir this uh, formidable exporter of LNG. And, you know, it took uh, a high-wire act to to make that happen. You highlight this dramatic change between being projected to become the world's largest importer, becoming the world's largest producer of hydrocarbons. How did that change U.S. foreign policy? The way it's changed U.S. foreign policy is by giving the U.S. a flexibility it didn't have, by giving the U.S. and really the world energy security that it didn't have, and changing relations with key nations. The sanctions on Iran that the Obama administration put in place, which the Iranians were convinced would not work, would not have worked had it not been for shale, the extraordinary growth of shale. You know, some of the listeners will remember a few years ago when uh, drones and rockets rained down on Abqaiq in Saudi Arabia, the single most important piece of hardware in the world oil industry. And if that had happened a few years earlier, there would have been panic on the market and uh, commodity traders would have been up 24 hours adjusting to it. Instead, when you look at what happened to price, it almost shrugged because you had this new security cushion in the world called U.S. shale rebalancing the market. But Paul, what really brought it home to me was I was in St. Petersburg, and uh, every year Vladimir Putin hosts the St. Petersburg International Energy Forum, which is his version of Davos, the World Energy Forum, and 3,000 people there. And I was told, you know, why don't you ask uh, President Putin the first question? And so I was asking him the typical question about what are you going to do about balancing your economy? So your budget is not so dependent on oil and gas. But by accident, I mentioned the word shale. And he started shouting at me. Not pleasant to be shouted at by Vladimir Putin in front of 3,000 people. And he was how terrible shale was, how awful it was, how it polluted, on and on and on. And I realized that he really doesn't like shale because it was a formidable new competitor to Russian hydrocarbons. But secondly, because he sees shale as an adjunct to U.S. foreign policy, giving the U.S. opportunities 
and flexibility it didn't have before. And I'm on the energy think tank for the uh, Indian government. I'm the only non-Indian on it. And it's a very interesting perspective because you can see India never expected to be importing oil and gas from the United States, but it is. And Prime Minister Modi and uh, uh, Petroleum Minister Pradhan have talked about how this energy dimension has become an important foundation for this changing strategic relationship between India and the United States. So all of those tell you this is a really big change. And the other day I was in a meeting with a uh, prominent U.S. senator, and he said an interesting phrase. He said, it's time to resize uh, the U.S. commitment to the Middle East. And I thought he would never have said that if the United States had not in the year 2020, for the first time since 1948, become energy independent. Yeah, it's just so seismic. And we had an episode early on in this podcast focused on LNG. And there's a couple of things that strikes me there. One is the oil traders have had a bit of a rough time this last or during the mid 2010s because of this low volatility, these low prices across hydrocarbons, ultimately brought on by shale and other overinvestment that you get with the commodity supercycle. But the one thing that they've all migrated to has been involved in LNG, car, you know, floating offshore storage and off the coast of India, etc. And also, one of the things that struck me about LNG was there's almost LNG diplomacy now, where LNG going to these markets is also forcing those markets to liberalize their energy policy, take on a more Western-style energy infrastructure. Is, is that a, a fair comment? Yes, I think what there's always been the question, you know, when will natural gas become a global market, a commodity, really a global commodity market? And certainly that's uh, what LNG is done. And particularly as the markets become more and more flexible, as you no longer have destination clauses, as it becomes a highly traded commodity. There's a wonderful example. You know, some of the U.S. senators got very upset a couple of years ago because it turned out the United States, uh, New England was importing Russian LNG. But that LNG has been traded at least, you know, two, three, four times before it arrived in uh, Boston Harbor. That's a commodity market. And so I think the, the force of that uh, changes things. And we certainly see that in Europe, where uh, the whole drive is to become more flexible. And that's a source of energy security for Europeans, particularly in these chronic questions about Russian oil and gas. But it's also, um, it turns out, you know, it's a tradable commodity. and um, one that is uh, very important to the commodity trading world. Yeah. And it's fascinating from our perspective that we've seen gas trading going from being very much a regional, you've got your US gas team, even your Northeast gas team, to actually now companies organizing global natural gas teams, because that's ultimately the pricing mechanism. And Paul, that is exactly, that's why the new map is the title of the book and the metaphor. It is a new map when you just look at the commodity trade, what's happened in LNG. You know, I went back to find out, you know, what's, how did the LNG business get started? And it's quite surprising. It actually <clears throat> started with uh, the export of LNG uh, in a converted World War II kind of tanker in 1959 from Louisiana to England. The whole reason it was being shipped was to deal with uh, the uh the terrible uh, coal 
inspired the smog, fog, yeah. the smog that gripped London in the 1950s. And then for various reasons, uh, it faded away with a lot of other sources, other markets. And here we have now uh, Chenier once again shipping LNG from Louisiana to Europe. Yeah. So this is where, so the next map you discuss in the book is is Russia. I kind of want to bring China in at the same time because Russia has now started to look eastward as Europe has, you know, is focused on energy security and other sources of supply and the renewable story. You had that very famous speech by President Xi of China in Kazakhstan where he, he, he essentially espoused the Belt and Road policy. Could you give us a sense of what that actually is. And the book is, I mean, it's almost scary about the what's going on in the South China Sea. The drivers behind that is ultimately an energy for China. And there's a lot in there, but can you just give us a sense of the Chinese energy map? Yes. I think that you've talked about the South China Sea. I think anybody interested in the future of energy has to read the section about the South China Sea and the Belt and Road in the new map, because it's uh, so central to what will happen and to what is this really, this is, you know, we talked about the major changes the last few years. One of the others in the last six years is the dramatic shift in the relationship between the United States and China. The South China Sea, that's an example where literal maps and metaphoric maps come together. Again, it was the accidents of history. A, a French captain with three ships putting flags on nine of the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea in 1933 because it was part of the French Empire. The Chinese reacting with fury and a famous geographer drawing a what became the nine-dash line map claiming the South China Sea is China's, adopted by the nationalists, adopted then by the communists when they took power. And at the root of uh, what is the most direct confrontation today, which is where U.S. and Chinese naval ships have several times come close to uh, to collisions where the U.S. ships say they're doing freedom of navigation patrols and the Chinese say, I'm sorry, you're in our territorial waters in the U.S. and other countries, Australia, Britain, Japan, say, no, no, these are international waters. And there's a strong energy dimension to it. You know, you'll often see people say there's immense energy resources under the South China Sea. There are resources there that are significant for companies and so forth, but I think we're talking like about 1% of world production, something like that. Our geologists in uh, IHS market and the company geologists we talk to say in terms of mega resources, no, that there could be significant gas, but it'd be expensive and difficult to produce and probably not very competitive. The real significance of the South China Sea is as the most important waterway in the world. One third of world trade passes through it, and uh, it's China imports now 75% of its oil. It regards oil imports as a strategic problem. Uh, it worries about uh, the U.S. interdicting their oil supplies in the case of a, you know, that fi a final standoff over Taiwan. And so that's uh, part of one of the main drivers for the Chinese assertion of uh, sovereignty over the South China Sea, as well as kind of just traditional nationalism and so forth. That's a very important map and very important uh, for people to understand what's at stake there. The Belt and Road, uh, as you say, I, I went back and, you know, actually got the speech that President Xi gave at uh, 
Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan in, 19, in 2014, where he launched this concept and he evoked the ancient Silk Roads and so forth. Then a month or two later, he went to Indonesia and talked about the, uh, the ocean Silk Road. And it's evolved over time as a really, the Chinese explained it in terms of connectivity. And I'll, I'll tell you, Paul, it was very interesting for me to actually work out a map of the Belt and Road, because it's really like six different routes and so forth, and spent a lot of time understanding what is the map. But it's what it is, is the Chinese use the phrase connectivity, and it's connecting Central Asia, Europe, Africa, Mideast, South Asia, to China, and in a sense, seeking to move the Middle Kingdom to make it the middle of the, of the global economy. And China has a lot of money to invest. It brings uh, technology, brings infrastructure building, and uh, it brings markets for Chinese goods. And it's a way, among other things, to solidify energy, energy connectivity uh, that doesn't necessarily depend on the South China Sea. So this is a big, bold, you know, developing complex program of China. They have modified it now, and they talk about avoiding what they call, what people call the debt trap. And it's very interesting. The U.S. government has set up a thing called the Development Finance Corporation with $60 billion of capital, which I believe is exactly the same amount of capital that the Silk Road Fund has. So this has now become a new arena of competition between the United States and, and China. But that concept of connectivity is a very elastic concept. The president of Panama said to President Xi, could we be part of the uh, uh, Belt and Road? And President Xi said, why not? It's about connectivity and the Panama Canal connects the world. So it's a pretty expansive concept. Yeah. And I don't think we, we have time to get into it here, but one of the striking things of the book throughout is obviously is the rise of China over the last 20 years. And as you say, the Belt and Road is a trillion dollar infrastructure package on a global basis. I think you say in the book is the biggest one since the Marshall Plan. Bigger, actually, if you put in dollars, I think it's like six times bigger than the Marshall Plan, something like that. If you adjust for inflation, it's huge. It's, you know, well over a trillion dollars. Yeah. And, you know, railroads to the heart of Germany, port, you know, building ports and rail junctions in Djibouti and all this, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. The sort of just staying on the last bit on the maps was one of the things that kind of struck me was this G2 and this G and the G3, the big three, that as a consequence of COVID, you kind of saw in stark relief, this realignment of ultimately the world's hydrocarbon producers, Saudi, Russia and the U.S. dictating policy to all of the other, to the rest of the world. I have a chapter in the book called "The Plague," which and in it kind of tell the inside story of what happened last year when it looked like the oil industry was going to disappear into an abyss of negative prices and collapse of the system seemed at hand, and uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia were in a kind of uh, oil price war, and. Uh, because I think they didn't understand just how bad the pandemic was and what it was going to do to demand, that 27 million barrels a day of demand were going to disappear, at least for a short time. And suddenly the U.S., and, and I talk about Trump, where he said, you know, I used to hate OPEC, I denounced it. A little over a year ago, he um, 
pushed by some senators from oil states uh, and realizing that uh, the shale industry's survival was at stake, uh, got on the phone and worked the phones and brought Russia and Saudi Arabia together. And as you said, the big three of world oil to uh, lead to a restraint of production on a scale that had never been imagined. And that's what stabilized that price and got it in that $30 to $40 range and pulled it back from the abyss. And it was a wholly different role for the United States. And uh, in a way, Trump embodied that. Uh, you know, He embraced OPEC plus as a partner of the administration in getting that done. Of course, yeah. Paul, that was a year ago. And we have to ask whether a Biden administration in similar circumstances would do the same things. And I think uh, it might be a different answer. Do you think what would have happened if the US were not a big producer at that point? Would there have been such a significant oil shock is one question. But how did the US having having sway in that discussion by just the sheer the scale of its now you know newfound production, how did that change the outcome, do you think? I think it changed it uh, enormously. I think that um, the messages that these senators were sending, people really don't know much about that, but you know, I, it's in the book. Uh, that had a big impact, particularly on the Saudis, about you know what's going to happen to our domestic industry. We're not going to let it go down. And that became, you know, Trump used that. And of course, connecting with the Russians, uh, which had been a huge... Uh, up till then, a pretty antagonistic relationship. But on this, they converged. And then you had countries, surprising countries like India, big consumer, imports 85% of its oil in support of it because it too did not want to see a collapse of the world oil industry and the consequences that would have then come from that in terms of when recovery came, in terms of what would have happened to prices. Yeah. Moving on, the probably the surprising not necessarily, I think, highlighted change in discussion has been the shift from peak supply or peak oil, but which has always meant when we'd run out of oil, as opposed to now the discussion has really shifted to peak demand, as you highlight in the book. I'd love to get Daniel Jurgen's take on 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 peak demand. What are the drivers behind it, and and kind of what do you? I know this is a very tough question, but how does that then start shaping these maps? It's something that I wrestled with and thought through in terms of the book. I, I knew the peak oil argument very well because it was a recipient of hostility from people who believe back in 2010 in peak oil because I just said, you know, technology is going to provide solutions and maybe we're starting to see it with shale. And only a few years later, we had the price collapse because we had too much oil. But now, as, as you say, it's peak demand and I mean, it would happen at some point anyway, once you reach income levels go up, population, global population stabilizes. And by the way, automobiles become much more efficient in terms of using gasoline, petrol. People underestimate that effect. They look at electric cars and don't see that the main, bigger factor right now is not electric cars, it's automobiles being more efficient. But the question is the timing of uh, peak demand you know, it might have been thought, you know, 2040, 2050, something like that as incomes went up in India, as cars proliferated. But now the view I take in the book and the case I make is probably around 2030. And it's being driven partly by technology 
and a great deal by uh, public policy. I mean, if you have, um, as you know, the state of California said, no gasoline cars can be sold after 2035, or Britain saying 2030, you start to chip away at demand. But I think it's going to take longer because, like in the United States, uh, you know, our numbers at IHS Market are car, the average car in the United States stays on the road at least 12 years. So it, it doesn't come as quickly as people think. But you have, gov- you know, policies now, particularly since, um, you know, with the Biden administration, really trying to uh, accelerate that. Here in the United States, uh, Biden introduced a $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan. You think infrastructure, well, that's roads and, and highways and bridges and tunnels and ports. Only 5% of the of it goes to, of that $2.3 trillion goes to all those things I've just mentioned. 50% more goes to the promotion of uh, electric cars, which is, you know, and pressure has come down on the automakers to, Volvo says after 2030, they're not going to produce any gasoline cars, probably. Yeah. And that's actually got a, we've done a couple of episodes on that. That's got a kind of cascading upstream effect because it's a much more complex supply chain around batteries. Paul, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think there's a, I don't want to use that Marxist term, false consciousness, but it's kind of this, people just think, oh, it will just happen. I mean, if if lithium demand is going to increase 4,300%, that's a big increase. And the mining, the supply chains for mining have, by the way, a lot of what we call ESG questions around them particularly where some of them are. There are a million children. A million children work in these uh, kind of hand-dug mines uh, in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo and, and other places. It takes, on average, over 16 years to open a new mine. Mm. So this thought that this can all happen quickly and that everybody can rush into it at the same time, logic says, oh, you better look at the numbers and you better look at the supply chains. And by the way, this is where the geopolitics that I talk about in the new map comes together with the uh, energy transition that I talk about, because those supply chains, uh, a lot of them actually run through China. And uh, even I was talking to one of the leading CEOs, one of the leading Korean battery makers, and you know, where does their raw materials come from? They come from China. Yeah, the, both the refining of the lithium and and actually sort of, you know, well, both parts, right, the, the petrochemical part of the supply chain and the battery creation part of the supply chain. I've got two questions, you know, ultimately, we, I want to end up on energy transition and doing some, you know, crystal ball gazing on how that will dr- change the, the geopolitical maps of the world. China and EVs is a fascinating subject. And, you know, they really have got ultimately what looks like a decade head start on the rest of the world in creating EVs through consistent, well, through entrepreneurs, they have their own Elon Musk you talk about in the book, and through government policy. First off, how much does gasoline cars ultimately account, drive oil prices on demand, as opposed to say the petrochemical industry? Can can you just help us tease that apart? Like if, if the world were to go straight to EVs, how much of oil demand does that cut off? I think uh, I think it's around 20 million barrels a day, something like that, 20, 25 million barrels a day. But there's another interesting number around that that I do know, which is if all the cars in the world today were EVs, and this really surprises people, it would reduce human CO2 emissions from energy by 
I think because people put gasoline or petrol into their cars, they think that's the main use of it. As you say, the petrochemical side of it, of demand is continuing to increase, although, you know, there's this anti-plastics fervor in the world too. Yeah, yeah. Can you just talk to us a little bit about China's EV electric vehicle policy and, and you know, because it, it's fascinating to me that only five years ago we were talking about sort of, you know, that GM and, and the US, the European and the US auto manufacturers were going to be, they were going to supply China and India and, and that was going to be their next big market and opportunity for growth. And actually there's, an, there's a reasonable argument that over the next decade, Europe and the US are importing Chinese cars because that's the they, they make more EVs at a more efficient, cost-effective level. I have a section in the book called Roadmap to the Future that is focused on this question. And actually, I believe for GM, it's correct to say they sell more cars today through joint ventures in China than they do in the United States. So if you look at Volkswagen, China's really important market. And so General Motors' declaration that no gasoline cars after 2035 is as much aimed at China as it is at the United States, because, as you say, the, the visible hand of government is um, very visible in China uh, on such things as electric cars. And the Chinese, for them, electric cars are, one, reducing the growth in demand for oil, because going back to what we talked about before, they worry about that importing of oil and their imports going up. Two, there's certainly you know climate and urban air pollution, which I think in China, those two merge together in a way that's not understood in the West. And uh, three, commercial reason, which is the Chinese are too late to get into uh, competing globally with uh, internal combustion engines. However, as you say, they're at the forefront of EV. They have a test bed called their own market. Almost half the world's EVs are in China. That gives them a foundation to, um, to move towards um, uh, you know, to being competitive in the world automobile market. I mentioned Volvo going to um, all electric in 2030. Keep in mind that Volvo is a Chinese company. It's owned by Geely. And whether they are selling large numbers of electric cars in China, uh, not in China, but in the United States or Europe or elsewhere in the world, we'll see how that plays out. But they certainly intend to be a uh, major force in terms of uh, the, the global market for electric cars, and they do have uh, that scale advantage. It was interesting when Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, announced it was going to go all electric in 2035, aspirationally, she said. It was interesting. She cited two models, one that sells for $4,000, which is a small car sold in China, and the other is a handcrafted Cadillac that will sell for $200,000. And I thought it's just very noteworthy that one of the two models she talked about is exclusively, as she talked about as a GM car, is exclusively sold in China. There's actually a really fascinating section in the book where you talk about kind of this confluence of EVs themselves, autonomous technology, and the confluence of ride shares as well. And Mary Barry, you quote her as saying, you know, uh, is it... Um, it's it's less congestion, less accidents, less um, less what is it? Less oil consumption. I can't yeah. remember. Or actually, she said zero, zero, and zero. <laughs> yes, yes. Which is yeah. a very. I mean, that, we call that an aspiration, not a. Uh, that's beyond almost an ambition. It's an aspiration. 
But there's another example where uh, accidents play such an important role. You know, Tesla really redefined the automobile industry by the success of, you know, when the Roadster appeared in 2008, it was a novelty. Now it's the direction everybody's going to go. The new Mustang is electric. And I tell the story in the book of a lunch that took place at a fish restaurant in Los Angeles in 2003, when a young technologist who was obsessed with electric motion named J.B. Straubel had lunch with Elon Musk, already famous then, and was trying to convince him to do an electric airplane. He said, I'm not interested. And he said, well, what about electric car? He said, I might be interested. And uh, that's the origin. I mean, Tesla had already started, but they moved in on it. And a few years ago, Musk actually said it, you know, that lunch hadn't taken place. There might never have been a Tesla, basically. That's a direct quote, you know, and you just realize that what impacts small things and coming together with people who have iron willpower and determination, what a difference it can make. And, you know, in 2003, no one would have seriously thought about electric cars. Thomas Edison had tried and gone head to head with Henry Ford and he had lost. Uh, a century earlier promoting electric cars. So it was a thing of the past and just a thing that hobbyists worked on. And, you know, now it's become the major strategic direction. And there's President Biden going out to Detroit to an drive F-150. Yeah. Uh, an, <laughs> an electric F-150. I mean, the best selling uh, pickup truck in the history of the world. And by all accounts, faster, better on, on all fronts. One thing, so I wanted to ask about, we're going to move on to energy transition. But what does reaching peak demand in 2030, let's say, what does that mean, do you think, for the oil majors, for the oil industry? Is, is, it, going to be, is it going to be a sharp decline or is it going to be a long, a long tail to this? Well, I think that it's going to be a, a sloping drop and that despite what you hear today, the world will still be using significant oil and natural gas in 2050. Carbon capture will have to become a much more serious uh, part of the um, of the picture, I think, to do that. But I think it's just uh, kind of the goals that are out there, as we were saying before, I think are somewhat detached from reality. So it's directionally true. I think there's going to be pressure on the capital availability for the industry. The Europeans are, are squeezing that. The Biden administration has proposals now that would say that lending and investment in the uh, that banks and pension funds and uh, institutional investors do has to be congruent with the net zero carbon target of 2050, which would give regulators a lot of room to intervene. So I find in the industry now uh, a concern about the availability of capital and how you structure your business to deal with that. And I think if you look at the major companies, you see them, you know, pursuing quite different strategies right now to uh, accommodate to this changing environment. But, uh, you know, and so much is now focused on uh, COP26 in Glasgow, which will be the successor to the famous Paris conference of 2015. And uh, I would say here it's very interesting. The change of administration in the U.S. is enormously important because you have John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, leading the global charge to um, really put pressure on uh, oil and gas industry. So I think it's going to be this, this issue of finance is something that people will, uh, will wrestle with. And different companies are, 
adopting different strategies. But one thing everybody wants to do is be the low cost producer. Yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? Because I think, and you you highlight carbon capture there, and that seems to be the much in the same way as you know acid rain and sulfuric acid, you know, sulfur uh, emissions twenty years ago. That was the technology, the catalytic converter, that sort of solved that, and and actually allowed the internal combustion engine to continue as it was. But it seems to me that you know without carbon capture, it's going to be a really volatile sector. And one that's going to struggle, I think, to attract talent, not least capital. And we could be in for quite a, um, as that market sort of degrades in investment, quite a some pretty high prices in oil, I would imagine. I think the answer is, uh, and this, I think, to your listeners will be very significant, I think volatile prices. We were just working on a scenario out to the year 2050. You know, we when you stand in front of a, you know, a board, They'll ask you is, do you think prices, one board member's convinced prices will be low and another's convinced prices will be high. But uh, as we went through it, we said, you know, prices will be volatile. They'll respond to, yes, what happens with public policy, what happens to, um, what I always say are the two most important characters in uh, my previous book, The Prize, supply and uh, demand, and it'll respond to the overall economy. This year, we're now estimating that the global economy is going to grow by 5.7%. Think about that. Last year, the global economy went back, GDP went down by 3.5%. We're in a period now of pretty intense growth and the amount of money sloshing around in the system. You know, it's been very tough for many people, but there's a lot of money in the system. The savings rate for American households now is three times higher than normal. So we're going to have you know, this is going to be a bullish time, I think, uh, for demand for a lot of things, uh, and that will affect energy. But GDP will swing up and down, and that will also have a big impact on price. I often find, you know, people will ask me, well, what's the price going to be? And sometimes I just want to say, well, tell me what GDP will be. The oil price does not exist in a vacuum, but it's very much these forces, economic, political, technological, psychological, they all play into shaping a price. And that's why I think, um, particularly in commodity market worlds, you have to assume volatility. Yeah. I think we're already seeing that narrative, right? You know, the, the commodity traders had an excellent 2020. Yeah. You look at some of the company's performance and you realize uh, their trading capabilities were a very important part of that performance. So I think, um, Paul, your community is going to, uh, will have some uh, exciting times ahead. And actually, we're seeing that drive of producers and consumers, consuming, you know, corporations, trying to build out commodity trading business units to start to try and manage that. But also, um, I think as well as there's this narrative of those organizations that thrived or survived and then thrived in COVID were the ones who were closest to their customers in terms of, of yes. how they manage their, their value chains. Paul, can I ask you a question? You're asking a question. Let me ask you. Given, as you say, the need that's out there for, in fact, people wanting to build up their trading arms for this environment, which makes sense, uh, is the talent there? I think the, the simple answer is no, or it's just like at the end of the last trough in the in the commodity super cycle, so the late 90s, you've had a real gutting of um, of talent. So, you know, we've had a, a eight years at least of people either retiring and not being replaced. 
you know, there's not been there's the, the the graduate schemes have shrunk, and the number of seats, a number of organisations participating in whatever, whether it's ags, metals, or energy, has also shrunk as well. So you've got a, a short, a smaller talent pool. I think there is a an open question there about actually organisations are able to do more with fewer people because so much of the tasks and functions have been automated that you know you probably don't need a, the same level of individuals but absolutely there is a, a shortage of individuals and you've also got this other issue that as silos collide by which i mean the technology and you know tech is becoming more utilized by whether it's the energy industry or the ag commodities world it's also being more in, utilized by the healthcare world right or, or whatever it might be right. so there's lots of draws on the same talent pools to solve the same problems so I think there's there's a fundamental change going on in how digitization is changing the talent requirements of the commodities world. But we're already seeing a big pickup in demand for commodities talent for people who in particular know the physical markets, not as opposed to sort of financial traders, if you like. So I think that's a really, you know, and, and much of the conversations we've had has ultimately ended up at that point about how can that gap be bridged. And ultimately, yeah. I think it's going to be competition for talent and, and rising prices, but also technology. Can I mention one other thing? Just you were mentioned peak demand and you mentioned ag trading. I mean, it looks like we're also heading towards peak cows, given the anti-meat fervor, uh, much of it driven by the role of agriculture and cows in greenhouse gas emissions. You know, you see you know, the French government saying they're not going to allow meat uh, in government-run cafeterias now. I mean, so, you know, it's funny when you just see something kind of really gain fervor and suddenly so many people now saying because of climate, we're going to become vegetarians or vegans. Well, and actually what we're doing is substituting, right? We we ourselves have been working on a number of plant protein searches yeah. for precisely that, right? It's not you're not trying to turn people into vegetarians or trying to turn them into substituting eating meat but from other sources. If we were to cycle out to twenty fifty or even, you know, okay, on the assumption that we will hit that peak demand and hydrocarbons in general become less, prices will decrease, production will go down. It seems to me that that's Fund the two maps we haven't really gone into, Saudi and Russia. That's a pretty dire or negative outlook for those producing nations who are so reliant on petrodollars. Well, I'm not sure about that. They might actually be winners here. They're both. We know Saudi Arabia is very low cost supplier producer, and Russian costs are much less than people recognize. So if other people get squeezed out, they may be the the ones who gain market share. Now the question for them, do they gain market share in a low price environment or a high price environment or a volatile price environment? But I think like they, like uh, everybody else, the Saudis are thinking a lot about what are their strategies for that era. And that's one of the big reasons, of course, for Vision 2030 in Saudi Arabia is to diversify the economy, to be less dependent. That goes back to the question I asked Vladimir Putin, how do you what do you can do about diversifying your economy? That question will become more important as time goes on. So, you know, if oil demand, you know, is 60 million barrels a day or 50 or 40, you know, they may be major suppliers, but, you know, and we still need petrochemicals. Electric cars are 20% plastic. Medicines people take are, 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 are made from oil products. So there are a lot of other needs there. 
you know, I think the answer is you've got to diversify. You've got to do what Abu Dhabi has done, uh, which is a remarkable job of diversification. Yeah. One of the natures of energy transition is ultimately less global flow of energy you've got, whether that's renewables in situ power production. You've got one of the fascinating things I find about metals, uh, sorry, batteries in particular, is that shipping batteries is really hard from a safety standpoint. And they're much, it's much easier to make the actual battery packs in situ, which is why, again, you kind of need this Europe, the US are trying to start securing that, that um, upstream supply chain. Is that a fair statement that actually energy transition might be a deglobalizer? And does that make conflicts more likely? Those are two different questions. I think um, to some degree, yes, it is deglobalization, although you're going to need a very significant trade in the raw materials. It may change your casting characters as to which countries are, are the most important. But I think as you're saying, uh, once you're win turbine is operating, we'll see what that does to the LNG market in, in the years to come. You know, you'll have a much smaller coal trade, but you're going to have these new global supply chains that are going to be necessary. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about. Um, obviously, geopolitics and oil have, off, you know, have coexisted and sometimes interacted in a very uh, combustible way. I think we're going to see that with the supply chains for uh, net zero carbon as well. Because as countries become more dependent on, on them, they'll intersect with geopolitical tensions. Look at what we've already seen happen with computer chips, technology, trade war between the U.S. and China. The EU came out with a study warning that they're too de they didn't use the word China, but the message was we're too dependent on China for these raw materials. Well, how are you going to change it? And by the way, what will that do to the cost? I mean, solar panels are really cheap because China's massive manufacturing capabilities. So I think there are complexities there that just are kind of whisked away on the notion. And also, of course, unless you're using electric car, everybody has electric cars. So often people forget wind and solar do not really replace oil. What they do is they compete with coal, natural gas, and nuclear and electric generation. And they're intermittent. I find that fascinating. That's kind of what Jeff Curry alluded to of Goldman Sachs in a previous episode about how that's driven by the changing, well, energy transition in part. You've got this trade wars and COVID and the fragility of these supply chains that COVID exposed was this drive to secure different sources of supply of all these raw materials, which is probably, as you say, going to change the cast of characters. You know, um, rare earths is a classic example where, again, like lithium, is battery production is completely dominated by by China. And, you know, rare earth is a crucial component of, of many of the technologies in energy transition. And, and it, you know, it's going to have a profound impact, I think, on, on I assume a profound impact on foreign policy if um, those countries that have these deposits of rare earth in Latin America, et cetera, suddenly have new, new stroke in the international world. I think that's right. It just it doesn't mean the end of geopolitics. It just means a different kind of geopolitics. Yeah. Well, um, it's been a fascinating discussion. I do hope that your next book is focused on uh, the geopolitics of, of, of energy transition and just these things we've talked about. Well, I tried very much, certainly in that last section of the new map called Climate Map, to really focus on that and you know, to point out to people that we're actually in the 312th year of the energy transition, which I date going back to uh, January uh, 1709, when it 
English metal worker figured out you could make iron better using coal rather than wood. Uh, in the past, uh, energy transitions have unfolded over a century or more. I think uh, it will be very interesting to see what happens to energy transition when you only have 29 and a half years uh, to get it done. So um, we're definitely, uh, Paul, living on a new map. And uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to have such a wide-ranging discussion about this uh, geography that touches all of our lives. Well, I thank you. And I think the the takeaway for, I guess, as you say, our community is that that new map is going to be um, changing and volatile, and therefore the commodity traders are going to play a crucial part. Yes, they will be, uh, as this world changes, uh, they'll be actually at this sort of center, I don't know, sort of the gear, making it, making these pieces work and whether they're trading energy, metals, ag, whatever it is, that's going to be the gearbox for the energy transition and uh, the world will be living it. Fantastic. Well, Dan, thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed this discussion too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.